Genesis 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and called his name Onan. She again bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste a semen on the ground, so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his brother-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had, was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought that she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Dulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at Anayim at the roadside? They said, There's been no cult prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we should be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, 
since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, as we approach this passage of Scripture, we find things here that are hard to understand. We find things here that are vile and reprehensible. They're vile and reprehensible to us. How much more so are they vile and reprehensible to you? Yet, Lord, even though your name is only briefly mentioned in this passage, as we look at it and as we look at it in light of redemption history, we see your hand of providence. Lord, help us to see your hand of providence in this passage, redeeming these horrific things. And Lord, I pray that as we consider this in light of, of your people, your people Israel and the truths that, that extend to us, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see the way that you redeem the things that are vile and reprehensible in our lives as you use even them for our good, for your glory, and for the building of your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a messed up world. Our culture, our culture seems to be sinking to lower levels every day in all kinds of immorality as society has pretty much thrown off any shred of biblical ethics, especially in the area of sexuality, and it's going to get worse. It's deeply concerning to me, and it has me concerned for the world that my children are growing up in. It has me increasingly praying for their salvation. It has me increasingly praying for the Lord's return. Well, the world is really bad, but this isn't really anything new. As I've said before, we're, we've really just been living on the moral equity of the reformers and the Puritans, but that equity is running out. The world is reverting to its natural godless state. And much of the sexual sin that you hear about being normalized has been normalized in other times in history as well. It's described in the scriptures as well. Immorality was rampant in much of the 4,000 or so years that are covered in history described in the Bible. And much of that immorality was of a sexual nature. Think about the, the time of Noah or Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the sexual cults of the pagans that infected Israel and the Greek and the Roman culture in which Paul ministered. We also have individuals like Samson and Delilah, David and Bathsheba, Solomon and his 700 wives and 300 concubines. The New Testament mentions several prostitutes, the Samaritan woman at the well, Herod and his brother's wife, and so on. 
But few chapters of the Bible are as sordid as the one that we are studying this morning. It was even uncomfortable, uncomfortable for me to read some of this in mixed company. In Genesis 37, we saw Jacob's beloved son sold into slavery in Egypt by Jacob's wicked sons. But in chapter 38, the story jumps to Judah. And this passage seems at first to be an interruption in the story of Joseph. Here in chapter 38, we see, we see Judah, Jacob's fourth son, the one who was on the ascendancy as the leader of Jacob's wicked sons, demonstrating deception, sexual immorality, cruelty, hypocrisy. And Judah and his wickedness are presented as a foil Contrasting, as we'll see next week, Joseph and his righteousness. This chapter also increases the tension about what's going to happen to Joseph. Now he's going to come back to center stage again in the next chapter, but, but then it's, it's somewhere close to 20 years later. The events of, of chapter 38 take place over that long a span of time. The first 11 verses covering almost all of it, and the last 19 covering less than a year. We're going to see that wickedness continues, and not just in Judah, that the wickedness continues in his sons. Now, God may have not been mentioned directly in the last chapter. The only time that he's mentioned directly here is in killing people for their wickedness. This passage, as we'll see, is vital to the wider narrative of Genesis as we continue to consider the Lord's promise to Abraham from Genesis 12, 2 and 3, I will make you a great nation. And the wider redemption narrative, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed, which is really a continuation of Genesis 3.15. The, the war between the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head and the seed of the serpent will bruise the, the, woman's, the seed of the woman's heel. So God has promised that, that the family of Abraham would be blessed. But Jacob's family in general, and Judah's family specifically, as we look at this chapter, don't seem to be particularly blessed. In fact, their wickedness is so bad that the seed of promise is threatened with extinction. And it's not from any external threat. The threat is from within, from inside, from within the chosen family. Tamar, Judah's daughter-in-law, is at the center of, of the story as the, the one who is the, the rightful, the, is, has the rightful place of being the mother of Judah's heir. And this story has many parallels, as we're going to see, to the story of Ruth. But again, God is hardly mentioned in this chapter. But as we saw with chapter 37, again, God's hand of providence will be revealed. There are three main scenes in this chapter. In verses 1 to 11, we see the seed of promise endangered. In verses 11 to 23, we see Tamar's plan. And then in verses 24 to 30, the seed of promise continues. And sinful behavior, as we'll see, carries 
the story, as much as the, as the seed of promise appears to be destined for destruction, but God carries his plan of redemption forward, working in and through human sin to achieve his sovereign ends. So verses 1 to 11, the seed of promise endangered. Well, the beginning of verse 1 links this chapter with the previous chapter. In the, it happened at that time. While, J while Jacob was reeling in his grief and, and while Joseph was being sold into slavery in Potiphar's house in Egypt, the story breaks away to Judah. And right away, even in the first verse, Judah immediately starts to look bad. Notice that he went down from his brothers. Well, Joseph was forcibly removed from his family, but Judah left willingly. Notice that Judah turned aside to an Adulamite named Hira. He's making friends with a Canaanite. But it gets worse in verse 2. Judah saw a Canaanite woman and went into her. So not only is he committing sexual immorality, but he's also rejecting his religious heritage. His great-grandfather Abraham and his grandfather Isaac had clearly condemned marrying pagan Canaanite women. So here we see Judah behaving like Esau. And that this woman conceived and bore a son. And he called him Ur. And she conceived again and bore another son and called him Onan. And then she bore another son and she called him Shelah. But there's foreboding in these names. First, the Canaanite woman is not even named. It's, she's just a she. This hints at the fact that, that she is going to be a dead end. Ne next, look at the name of the town where, where Sheila was born. Kezib. Kezib means to deceive. So when we look at this, we see that something is coming. Quite often when, when details like this are included and other details are omitted, take note because these are clues that the Holy Spirit-inspired human author wants us to see something that is about to take place. Judah seems to be trying to continue the line of promise. He gets a wife for Ur in verse 6. Now her name is given. Her name is Tamar. And, and this, again, the contrast, we see that, that Judah's wife is not mentioned while Tamar's name is mentioned. Again, this is, this is an important detail when we think about what's coming. Now Tamar was likely also a Canaanite. But notice that Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And so here we see the moral decline of Jacob's family continuing. To Ur is human. Wanted to make that joke for a long time. But, but seriously though, sin is human. And the wages of sin is death. The Lord put Ur to death. Now, now, we've seen this sort of thing happening before on a, on a different scale. When In the days of Noah, when, when the Lord wiped out almost all life on the face of the earth. And he'd wiped out the cities of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. But this is the first time in Scripture that we see God specifically putting an individual to death directly for sin. This is the death sentence carried out by God for his sin. 
Now, we don't know specifically what Ur did, but this is a clear judgment against him. This is a clear judgment against Judah's family. And Tamar becomes a widow and would be destined to childlessness apart from the custom that is later referred to as leveret marriage. Judah told his second son Onan in verse 8, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, strange and distasteful as that is to us, this practice was common in the ancient Near East, not only in Israel, but also the Assyrians, the Hittites, and other nations practice it. And it's going to be codified in, as law in Israel in Deuteronomy 25, 5-10. Leverant marriage, it was hoped, would provide a son who would preserve the deceased husband's family name and the inheritance. And also in a culture where there was no social safety net, this would provide security and sustenance for a widow. But Onan knew that the offspring wouldn't be his, so whenever he went into her, he refused to impregnate her. Like the unnamed relative in Ruth who refuses to marry Ruth, Onan wasn't willing to fulfill his responsibilities for selfish reasons. And he repeated this practice again and again. Verse 9 says, whenever he went into her. This is reprehensible. Our hearts go out to Tamar. Onan is merely using her for his pleasure. He is willing to take from her, but he is not willing to give. And three times in verses 8 and 9, the word offspring is used. The Lord had promised again and again to provide offspring to Abraham's descendants. As Gordon Wenham points out, that, that Onan is deliberately frustrating the fulfillment of these promises. Onan's action demonstrates his opposition to the divine agenda. This, this is not, as the Roman Catholic Church falsely teaches, a, a, a model for, for birth control. What, what's happening here is God is showing his displeasure with Onan's failure to fulfill the covenant promises. In Deuteronomy 25, the, the brother-in-law who refused to fulfill this obligation will be subject to public humiliation. He would have his sandal removed and, and, and the woman would spit in his face. And here the Lord dealt with it more decisively. He kills Onan. Things are looking pretty bleak for Judah's family. Well, now in verse 11, Judah sins against Tamar too. He tells her, remain a widow in your father's house till Sheila, my son, grows up. Now, Judah thinks that, that his son's deaths are, are Tamar's fault. He thinks that, that well, Ur died and, and Onan died. The common denominator here is, is Tamar. So that if I give Sheila to her, he's going to die as well. But Judah is blind to his son's sin. He is showing a remarkable ability to fail to perceive the reality of what is going on. And some parents, I, I think of, are, are unable to see reality when it comes to their children's sin. In some cases, they have too negative a view of their children's sin. But, but when I was working as a school teacher, I noticed that, that if there was a wrong perspective the parents had of their children's sin, most often it was that they couldn't see 
their children's sin. If there were problems with, with a student, parents would blame everyone else. They would blame other kids, the strange parent, or, or even the teacher for their children's sin. But the reality was that it wasn't Tamar's fault, it was the sons of Judah. And in this, Judah also has some culpability for his failure to deal with his son's sin. And so Judah tells Tamar that he's going to allow her to marry Sheila when Sheila grows up. He sends her to her father. He sends her away from his home to her father's home. But that's not her home anymore. She's part of this family now. As, as Bruce Waltke explains, Judah's response is also wicked. Judah, with his dignity and status, is expected to care for a defenseless widow. He violates his daughter-in-law by shirking his responsibilities, denying her right to well-being and status in the community, and shifting her problem to others. And so Judah is sinning against Tamar as well. And furthermore, according to the regulations of leveret marriage, if, if her brother-in-law was not willing to fulfill his responsibility, then Tamar was supposed to be able to be free to go and marry somebody else. But, but now Judah is just keeping Sheila from her under a false pretense. He is never going to let him marry Tamar. He isn't keeping his word and he isn't keeping the Lord's decree. He is sentencing Tamar to childlessness. Tamar cannot marry anyone else under these circumstances, but neither can Sheila. So in verses 12 to 23, then we begin to see Tamar's plan in response to this treatment. In the course of time, Judah's unnamed wife dies. She has no more children. It looks like the line of Judah is, is doomed to die out. Now remember, about 20 years have passed since the beginning of the chapter. And after a time of grief, Judah goes to his sheep shearers with his friend Hila the Adulamite. Now, sheep shearing in that culture was, it was a time of, of celebration and often inebriation. Now, Judah, as we've seen, is very capable of sinful behavior on his own. But this guy, this guy, Hira, really doesn't seem to be a very good influence on Judah. Whenever Hira's around, Judah gets into trouble. That's another thing that I noticed when I was teaching, that, that when we had a new kid in the class, I could, I could figure out by that first recess what kind of kid that was going to, he was going to be. Almost invariably, the naughty kids would gravitate to the other naughty kids in the class. Kids, just think about this when you think about the friends that you choose. Are you choosing friends that are going to help you to do the right thing? Or are you choosing friends that are going to drag you down? It's not ki just kids, adults. We need to think about this as well. If you want to, to grow as a Christian, you need to seek the most godly people you can and focus your time and your attention on them. Looking for people who are going to spur you on to love and good deeds. So Judah is simply showing his character by choosing this Canaanite friend. Well, Tamar finds out about Judah's plans to go shear sheep, and, and so she springs into action. She removes her widow's garments. And remember, this is a long time she, since, since Tamar, or since Sheila was, Sheila was a kid, she's been wearing these widow's garments. It's highlighting her obedience and also highlighting Judah's deception. 
She takes off her widow's garments and then covers herself with a veil to hide her identity and sits at the entrance of Anaim on the road to Timnah. She knows that Judah is going to pass that way. Now she's been mistreated and demeaned by the men of her family and has been subjected to them, subjected by them to the low position of a childless widow. But now she lowers herself even further by adopting the status of a prostitute. She's been deceived by her father-in-law, but she's now going to use his sinful desires to deceive him. But she's taking a big risk here because if Judah finds out who she is, her life will be forfeit. Sheila has since grown up and, and she's, she's figured out by now that Judah had no intention of giving her to him in marriage. So she felt that she had to do something. And sure enough, Judah comes along and sees her by the roadside. He doesn't recognize her with a veil on her face and he thinks that she's a prostitute. He didn't know that she was his daughter-in-law. So he says to her, come, let me come into you. Now this is repugnant, but her plan is working. She asks, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he tells her that he will give her a young goat as payment. But now she sets the hook. If you please, if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he asks, what pledge? She replies, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. Now a signet was a cylindrical seal usually made of stone that would, would hang around its owner's neck. It was an engraved stone that would be rolled across an item, leaving it an authoritative and authenticating mark. Now similarly, a staff was a, position, was a, a symbol of authority and often unique to its owner. So Judah here is being presented as being as foolish in giving these things to Tamar as Tamar is cunning in taking them from him. So Judah gives his signet and cord and staff to her and goes into her and we're told that she conceives by him. And then she leaves, taking off her veil and putting her widow's garments back on. Now what does, does all this deception remind you of anything? Think about what we've been reading over the previous chapters. Isaac, Jacob, and now Judah were all deceived involving clothing and a goat. These, these parallels are presented here intentionally. In verse 20, Judah sends Hira back with the goat to get the pledge back from her, but Hira can't find her. And he asks around, where's the cult prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? They tell him that no cult prostitute has been here. Judah says in verse 23, let her keep these th the things as her own or we should be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. Bruce Waltke likens this to a, a reputable gentleman who unwittingly loses his credit card in a brothel. Judah isn't concerned about the immorality of his behavior. He just doesn't want to get mocked for his foolishness. Now, there's no direct comment on the morality of Tamar's actions here. The, the wickedness of Ur, the, the selfishness of Onan, and the deception of Judah all led to Tamar's plan. We're going to see in the next chapter how Potiphar's wife makes advances on Joseph, but Joseph flees. 
The, the morality of, of Joseph's actions highlight the immorality of Judah's actions. This, this business of, of lever of marriage is, is not extended to a father-in-law in the scriptures, but the practice was, was done in other cultures in the ancient Near East. In the scriptures, such a relationship is considered to be incestuous. In Leviticus 18, 15, and, and 20, 12, someone who does to Judah, or does what Judah did to his daughter-in-law, should be, will be put to death. So Tamar might have done the wrong thing, but she was motivated by her right as matriarch of Judah's offspring. Now the ends don't justify the means, but, but Tamar is being presented in a similar light as Ruth, who also covered herself and also did something questionable in going down to the threshing floor and lying at Boaz's feet. And while it doesn't seem that Ruth and Boaz committed fornication, the parallels are again here clear and intentional. And finally, we see in verses 24 to 30, the seed of promise continues. Three months elapse, and, Judah's, or, and Tamar's plan has gone undetected until now. Judah is told that Tamar is, has been immoral and is, has become pregnant by prostitution. And Judah responds harshly, bring her out and let her be burned. He demands a cruel death for her, far worse than stoning that the law would require. But this is also a way for him to get Tamar out of the way so that Sheila can marry someone else. This is also hypocrisy. He might have been ignorant of Tamar's identity, but he consciously committed fornication as well. Hosea 4.14 highlights this kind of double standard. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. If Tamar is guilty and deserving of death, then so is Judah. Tamar waits until the last minute to reveal the truth. Verse 25. Now, she doesn't make a direct accusation, but presents the evidence that reveals the verdict. She sends word to Judah saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. This has echoes of the, the blood-soaked robe from chapter 37 that deceived Jacob. Now, Judah rightly recognizes that these belong to him, but, he, but also highlights his failure to recognize Tamar's identity. And so he declares in verse 26, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. Now his remark does not necessarily mean that she hadn't done anything wrong, but that she had not been as wrong as him. He acknowledges that her motivation lined up with the goals of leverage marriage, but that he himself has failed to do this. This is the beginning of a turning point for Judah. We saw that in the life of Jacob. We saw that, that Jacob wasn't a very likable person in the beginning of that narrative, but that he gradually changed through the course of that Toledot. But now here, as we see Judah beginning to, it seems, repent for his sin, we're seeing the beginning of a turning point with Judah. His acknowledgement of guilt and his understanding of Tamar's motivation and his exoneration of her marks a change of character. 
Remember, he's the one who out of greed had convinced his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery. But later in Genesis 44, Judah is going to show great concern for his father and is going to show a willingness to sacrifice himself in order to protect his youngest brother, Benjamin. There's going to be change that is apparent in the life of Judah. Notice also that he does not know Tamar again. Although earlier he had, he had known her in the narrow sense of the word, he, didn't, he did not know her in the broad sense. But now he knows her in the broad sense, but doesn't know her in the narrow. Well, now fast forward six months. That the time of labor arrives and it's discovered that there are twins in Tamar's womb. In, in all of scripture, only Rachel and Tamar are said to have conceived twins. It's a scene that parallels the prenatal struggle between Jacob and Esau. One puts out his hand and the, the midwife ties a scarlet thread around it and then he puts his hand back in and then the other son is born first. He comes out first and and so the midwife says to this one who, who comes out first, what a breach you have made for yourself. And so she called him Perez. So he's called Perez. Then his brother came out with a scarlet thread and they called him Zira. Now I'm not going to get allegorical here about the scarlet thread. But the main point here is that once again, the younger brother superseded the elder. Zira's hand came out first. Technically, he was the firstborn, but it is Perez who has that honor. It's Perez who is considered as the firstborn in the genealogies, notably in the genealogy of Ruth. Please turn with me in your Bible for a moment to Ruth chapter 4. To Ruth chapter 4, in verses 18 and 19. Notice, these are the generations of Perez. And as you follow that genealogy down to the end, look who we have there at the end of verse 22. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. David, the king of Israel, is born ten generations after Perez. So David is a descendant. David, the king of Israel, is the descendant of Judah and Tamar. This is amazing. Like Isaac was deceived by his son Jacob, and Jacob was deceived by his sons, now the deceiver Judah is deceived by his daughter-in-law. The seed of promise continues, but it continues through deception, and it continues through a Canaanite woman. And this isn't the last questionable situation that leads to a continuation of the seed of promise. We've already seen how the genealogy of Perez and Ruth now leads to David. But turn to another genealogy in your Bible, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, look at verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Do you see this? If you follow this genealogy down, look, look at verse 16. Look where this genealogy in, in Matthew 1 ends. It ends not just with King David. It ends with Jesus Christ. So Perez isn't just in the genealogy of David, he's in the genealogy of Jesus in his humanity. 
That whole sordid affair was used of God, not just to bring about the king of Israel, but to bring about the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This sordid affair between Judah and Tamar is also not the only questionable affair that's listed in this genealogy. But besides Mary, there are four other women in Jesus' genealogy. And as Sidney Grinanis points out, Tamar, likely the Canaanite, Rahab, the Canaanite, Ruth, the Moabite, Bathsheba, probably a Hittite. They also had a scandalous union. Tamar pretended to be a prostitute. Rahab had been a prostitute. Ruth, another foreign childless widow of an Israelite, went to the threshing floor in a, in a way that was inappropriate for a woman and was with Boaz. Bathsheba and her adulterous relationship with David. And all of them were in the line of Judah. All of them were in the line of promise. All of them are in the line through whom the Messiah will come. And so this story, this sordid story, which seems at first to be a, a side note in Genesis and the Bible, provides a critical link in redemption history. And the moral decline in Jacob's family here continues. And initially, at least, it's Joseph is going to emerge as a shining beacon. And next week, we're going to see more of the contrast between Judah and Joseph. Think about how the fact that, that Judah leaves his family willingly, but Joseph was forced out. Judah makes friends with pagans. Joseph is sold into a pagan's house. Judah associates with pagan women. Joseph avoids a pagan woman. Judah is sexually immoral. Joseph is pure. Judah victimizes a woman. Joseph is victimized by a woman. Judah is under the judgment of God, but Joseph is blessed by God. Judah is justly accused by, by a woman, but Joseph is falsely accused by a woman. Judah seeks sin, but Joseph flees from sin. And as Israel considered this message that was, was given to them, as they, continue, as they would consider at pretty much any point in their history, apart from a couple of, of points where they turned back to God, that Israel was more like Judah than it was like Joseph. Israel was more like Judah than they were like Joseph, yet they could be confident that God would accomplish His sovereign plan even through their disobedience, even through their sin. As we consider this passage of Scripture, we need to acknowledge that we are more like Judah than Joseph, apart from God's grace. We think about the, the sin that we committed prior to coming to Christ. We consider the sin that, that we still continue. It, it's, it's easy to be discouraged. It's easy to, to think, it's over for me. God can't use me for, for the advance of his kingdom. I'm, I'm just going to be on the shelf. But take heart, brothers and sisters, that God can use even your sin to achieve his purposes. Maybe you failed again. Maybe, maybe your sin has once again reared its ugly head. And you realize that, that you, not just like Judah, but like Ur and Onan, deserve to be killed by God. 
but he's had mercy on you. If you are in Christ, if you are elect by grace, you could be confident that God will use you. He will even use your sin to advance his kingdom for the glory of his name. Turn away from your sin. Put your faith afresh in Christ and walk in him in the strength that he provides for his glory, for the advance of his kingdom. And watch what God does in and through you for his glory and for the advance of his kingdom. Let's pray together. Holy God, as we see this passage of Scripture, Lord, we see all sorts of, of vile things taking place. Lord, we find these things reprehensible. Yet, Lord, if, if we are honest and if we understand your holiness and our sin, we realize that far too easily we also engage in vile and reprehensible practices in rebelling against you in all types of different ways. Yet, Lord, as we look at this passage, we see your grace. We see your mercy. We see that, that even through the, these sinful actions, Lord, that you use them to bring Jesus Christ into the world according to the flesh. Lord Jesus, as we consider this passage, we realize that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is salvation through you, through our Lord and Savior. Lord, we pray that you would help us to walk in repentance and faith. We pray that you would help us to, to flee from the sin that so easily ensnares us. Help us to look to you, the author and, perfection, author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is now seated at your holy throne, Lord God. Help us, Lord, to walk in repentance and faith. Help us, Lord, to, to look to you, the sovereign God, and to have confidence, to have hope that you could redeem not only the bad things that people do to us, but, Lord, that you could also do the, redeem the bad things that we do for your glory, for our good, and for the building of your kingdom. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.